0: Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, October 8th. In today's news, the pandemic looms large in a civil but sharp vice presidential debate. More Republicans in tough races distance themselves from the president. And the US imposes punishing sanctions on Iran over humanitarian objections from European allies. But first, The Big Idea. As President Trump went back to the Oval Office on Wednesday afternoon, several White House officials continued to refuse to say when Trump last tested negative for the coronavirus, leaving open the possibility that he potentially exposed dozens of people to the deadly contagion before the announcement of his positive test last Friday. White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows said they're keeping it secret to protect Trump's privacy, White House spokesman Brian Morgenstern, filling in for the press secretary because she too has COVID, said they're not going to, quote, go back through a bunch of records and look backwards. That's what contact tracing is all about. Officials familiar with the situation told Tolu Olorunipa, Josh Dossi, and Ashley Parker that Trump has not been tested daily in recent months. Only rarely has Trump been tested on a machine other than the one produced by Abbott Labs, which provides rapid results— that are not particularly accurate. Trump sought to depict a presidency yesterday that has returned to normal, saying on Twitter that he has recovered. In a recorded video released on Twitter late Wednesday, the president stood in the Rose Garden without a mask, and he mostly focused on erroneously pitching therapeutics as a cure rather than emphasizing good public health practices. Then he said it was a, quote, blessing from God and a blessing in disguise that he caught the virus. White House physician Sean Conley released a memo Wednesday describing Trump's vital signs as stable and in normal range, whatever that means, and announcing that lab work conducted on Monday detected some antibodies for COVID. But the memo provided only limited information. NBC reports this morning that Trump demanded that Walter Reed doctors sign non disclosure agreements during his surprise trip to that hospital last November. His team required NDAs from not just physicians, but also non-medical staff. At least two doctors at Walter Reed refused to sign NDAs and were subsequently not permitted to have any involvement in the president's care. The reason for that trip last year remains shrouded in mystery. It's not clear if Trump made the same demand of Walter Reed doctors and staff during his three-day hospitalization over the weekend. And an internal FEMA memo obtained by ABC says the White House outbreak has now infected 34 staffers in other contexts. And Bloomberg News is reporting that the head of the White House security office, Creed Bailey, became sick with the virus last month and remains gravely ill in the hospital. But the administration has been trying to keep it a secret. Chris Christie remains hospitalized in New Jersey with the virus, where he's been since Saturday, and his condition is unknown. The former governor has struggled with his weight and has a lifelong history of asthma, putting him at higher risk of developing complications. Christie was at the White House for that Amy Coney Barrett announcement that was now clearly a super spreader event, and he also helped the president prepare for the debate. And Politico is reporting that the Marine Corps' number two officer is tested positive. General Gary Thomas contracted the contagion after meeting with Coast Guard Admiral Charles Ray, who got it after attending a Gold Star event at the White House. Meanwhile, rather than bond Trump to the millions of Americans who have suffered from the virus or watched a loved one go through it, Trump's experience has only deepened the sense of distance that some voters say they feel from a president who has consistently downplayed its severity. In interviews with my colleague Griff Whitty, Americans whose lives have been upended by the contagion say they feel disappointed that the president has squandered an opportunity to model responsible behavior— They expressed anger that Trump has continued to minimize the virus's threat after receiving deluxe care that few people could ever get, many could only dream of, at a time when testing and treatments are still running low. And they voiced fear that Trump's words and actions will lead to more reckless behavior among his supporters. Early this morning, Regeneron announced that it has filed paperwork to ask the FDA for emergency use authorization to let regular people, have access to the monoclonal antibody therapy that Trump received at Walter Reed. Regeneron says in its filing that the treatment was developed with the use of a cell originally derived from an abortion. The MIT Technology Review reports that the Trump administration has taken an increasingly firm line over the last few years against medical research using fetal tissue from abortions. But when the president faced a deadly encounter with COVID, His administration raised no objections over the fact that the new drugs also relied on fetal cells and anti-abortion campaigners were silent too. The MIT review notes that many types of medical and vaccine research employ supplies of cells originally acquired from abortion tissue. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one. The vice presidential nominees clashed Wednesday night in Salt Lake City over the leadership of Trump and the policy plans of Joe Biden. Both Vice President Pence and Senator Kamala Harris returned again and again to attacking the top of the other campaign's ticket. Harris went after Trump's efforts to stem the coronavirus, his attempts to upend the Affordable Care Act, his trade policies, and his reluctance to condemn white supremacists at the first debate last week. She called Trump's handling of the pandemic the greatest failure of any presidential administration in the history of our country and alluded to his statement to author Bob Woodward that he wanted to play down the threat because he didn't want to create a panic. Pence focused on Biden's plan to raise some taxes for the wealthy and his efforts to move past fossil fuels, repeatedly returning to mentions of the Green New Deal. Pence called Biden a cheerleader for communist China and attacked the former vice president for recommending that Obama delay the raid that killed Osama bin Laden. Pence's soft-spoken debate style was a marked contrast to the excitable and at times belligerent tone Trump took last week. But like Trump, Pence repeatedly went over his allotted time and spoke over moderator Susan Page, ignoring her attempts to keep the debate moving along. Though Harris's advisors said they hoped she would not end up having to fact-check Pence, she dedicated a fair amount of time to doing so, challenging Pence's assertions that Biden would raise taxes. She repeatedly promised that nothing will change for anyone earning less than $400,000 a year, and ban fracking. Biden has proposed an end to new fracking on federal lands, but does not support banning the practice altogether. Harris and Pence were seated at distant tables and separated by clear plexiglass barriers to help prevent the spread of infection. And the Commission on Presidential Debates announced this morning that the second Trump versus Biden debate, a week from today, will be virtual. The first Zoom debate. Number two, fresh polls continue to look good for Biden. The Democratic nominee is up by five points among likely voters in Wisconsin, according to a new Marquette University Law School poll, which is the gold standard. New Quinnipiac University polls put Biden up 11 points in Florida, 13 points in Pennsylvania, and five points in Iowa. And a Fox News poll puts Biden up 10 points nationwide among likely voters, up from five points in the same poll last month. That's a lot of numbers, but the trend lines are clear. And facing a political reckoning as Trump's support plummets and a possible blue tsunami looms, It is now conservatives and Trump allies who are showing flashes of discomfort with the president, straining to stay in the good graces of his core voters without being wholly defined by an erratic incumbent. For some Republicans, the 11th hour repositioning may not be enough to stave off defeat, but the criticism, however muted, illuminates the extent to which this crisis exists inside a party that's growing alarmed about its political fate and confused by Trump's erratic tweets and decision making. One senior GOP official close to Trump told my colleague Bob Costa that the current moment feels like the crossroads Republicans faced when the Access Hollywood tape came out in October 2016, four years ago yesterday. But the senior officials said the situation is getting worse and worse, and they didn't think that it would be this bad at this point. In Arizona, for example, Senator Martha McSally, a Republican struggling to hold on to her seat, was evasive during a debate on Tuesday night when she was asked whether she's proud of her support for Trump. Then on Wednesday, the Cook Political Report said the race between South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham and former state Democratic Party chairman Jamie Harrison is now a toss-up. Graham, who's been one of Trump's staunchest allies on Capitol Hill, tweeted yesterday that he does not agree with the president's decision to stop negotiating with Speaker Nancy Pelosi for COVID relief until after the election. We're seeing that from lots of other Republicans down the ballot. Congressman John Katko, who represents the Syracuse area in upstate New York, faces a rematch of a tough 2018 race, also publicly broke with the president yesterday and strongly urged the president to rethink his decision on aid. And in Maine, Susan Collins, the Republican senator, did the same. As she fends off Democrat Sarah Gideon in her reelection fight, she put out a statement saying that Trump is making a huge mistake And notably, she refuses to say whether she's even voting to re-elect Trump. Number three, the Trump administration plans to announce today that it will impose crushing sanctions on Iran. European allies warn that the move, which was first reported last night by my colleague John Hudson, could have devastating humanitarian consequences on a country reeling from the coronavirus and an ongoing currency crisis. It's part of a maximum pressure campaign to bring Tehran to the table. The measures will target the few remaining banks not currently subject to secondary sanctions in a move that U.S. allies fear will diminish channels that Iran uses to import humanitarian goods, such as food and medicine. And Trump tweeted last night that all U.S. troops in Afghanistan should be home by Christmas. We'll see if that happens. Color us dubious. But his comments come as Afghan government and Taliban negotiators continue negotiations in Doha. But there's still no evidence that 19 years after the U.S. went in, the Taliban has severed relations with al-Qaeda, a key condition in the deal struck with the Trump administration earlier this year, and sadly, the level of violence across Afghanistan has sharply increased in recent months. Finally, let me close with a remarkable reminder that we live in a relatively young country. Lyon Gardner Tyler Jr. has died at 95 in Tennessee. His grandfather was President John Tyler. His father, alive from 1853 to 1935, was the longtime president of the College of William and Mary in Virginia. His father, before that, was born 231 years ago, and he was the 10th president from 1841 to 1845. He's best remembered for annexing Texas. He's also remembered for that slogan of that campaign, Tippy Canoe and Tyler, too. And his great-grandfather was John Tyler Sr., who lived from 1747 to 1813. He was college roommates with Thomas Jefferson. They used to play their fiddles together. Then he served in the Continental Army and later as governor of Virginia. In the grand sweep of history, it's amazing when you think about how we're really not that far removed from the founding fathers. And every generation must safeguard freedom to pass it down to the next. Now, that task is ours. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, October 8th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. The Daily 202 is brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and the new podcast, Caring for Tomorrow. I'm Joan London, the host of the series. Please join us as we explore the challenges and solutions that are defining the future of health care. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts.